Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg TV called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we had a What You Miss First, an exclusive cookout. It started with a tweet and ended with me heading to Minnesota for an interview with Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari from his backyard. He shared tips and tricks for grilling the perfect steak and timing rate hikes just right. Take a listen. The challenge with cooking thick steaks is how do you get them nice and well done on the outside, but medium rare on the inside? So I go at 122 Fahrenheit. For steak. Now that's way too cold. It's too cool. It'll be very, very rare if you just cook the steak here, but I know we're going to finish it on the grill, right. which is going to cook it some more. So the whole reason this segment came about is because I saw this on your Instagram. Well, I'm the only one that, so far that I know of that's cooking and putting it out on social media. Definitely the only one. I think everybody at the Fed wants to enhance transparency and wants yeah. to be more engaging with the public, and so we're all looking for different ways to do it. This is kind of a lighthearted way of saying, of hey, this is what I like to do when I'm not working. What do you see as the value so far in your social media engagement? What do you get out of it? I think it's a low-cost way to engage people in a very genuine manner, and that's the point. I don't do much for seasoning. All I do is salt, pepper, and butter, and then put in the sous vide bag and then put in the sous vide for an hour. For an hour. For an hour. And then, once it's done there, put it on the hottest grill I can, and that's the secret, cooking directly on the coals. The sous vide is ready, so let's go ahead and drop it in. It's 122 degrees. Now we leave it. I'm gonna set the timer for an hour, and we're good. I guess we could talk a little monetary policy besides steak. Does there get to be a point where you question the premise of this idea that there's a full employment number out there? I do question the, the notion In a recession, economists tend to raise the natural rate of unemployment. They think that people get dislocated, skills are mismatched, and then it ratchets up, and then only begrudgingly do they lower it. So one conclusion that I've already made is I don't think it's useful in a recession to ratchet up the natural rate of unemployment Hmm. because we're so reluctant to then lower it, and we end up being late Uh, lowering it in the recovery. We'd be better off just holding it fixed than ratcheting it, it up. And now... Maybe it's a lot lower than we think. We know that workers have more education today than they did 20 years ago. We know that firm dynamics have changed. Is it 4.3? Is it 4.5? Or is it 3.5? We don't really know. That's interesting. So there's an asymmetry in sort of 
people's ten in the in the estimate of the full of uh, what is full employment, and it's easier to bump it up, and then people are really slow to bring it down. Uh, that's just an observation that I've made. You know, in the the very deep Great Recession, the unemployment rate hit 10 percent. Most economists' estimate of the natural rate of unemployment ratcheted up very, very quickly, and then there was a narrative, and I was, I was echoing it too, saying yeah. all these people who left the job market were permanently lost; right. they would never come back. That has proven to be dead wrong, and we would have been better off not having made that assumption than only slowly learning that it happened to be true. It's great that you know, as the unemployment rate has come down, maybe people will ratchet down their estimate of where the natural rate of unemployment is. Is there something that the Fed can do next time around so that it's not keeping that number too high and therefore implicitly running monetary policy that's potentially too tight? Too tight. Well, I think one simple thing is don't ratchet it up. You know, if we if we figure out where it is, maybe it's four and a half, maybe it's four, maybe it's three and a half. If we in this cycle say, okay, well, it really is three and a half or three seven, I say the next time there's a recession, let's just hold it there yeah. and let's operate monetary policy using that assumption rather than the reflex of ratcheting it back up. In light of this, I know that like Canada every five years has some sort of big review where they look at just their approach to uh, making policy and whether it makes any sense and sort of revisits all of their assumptions. Would you support something like that at the Fed? You know, I'm not opposed to it, but I will say we've worked very hard to establish credibility around our 2% inflation target. And I'm very skeptical that if we, even if we wanted to raise the inflation target, for example, yeah. say 3%, as some economists have recommended, I'm very skeptical that the American people would support it. I think there'd, there'd likely be big pushback. We've worked very hard to get a framework that I think works. I think we should live by that framework. And that means actually live by the symmetry of that 2% target and not treat it like a ceiling. The doubts are a little bit higher, maybe four hikes this year. Does that seem appropriate to when, as you say, the sort of mistake the Fed has been making so far has been to run it too tight? Well, my view is I think legitimately we are moving closer to our inflation target. Core inflation is now around 1.8%. Wage growth is picking up a little bit. So overall, I would be comfortable with us moving to a neutral rate, not stimulating the economy, but not also constraining the economy. And once we get to neutral, let's just wait and see how inflation evolves. Look at how wage growth evolves. evolves. So that to me is, you know, we could be one or two hikes away from neutral. There are wide ranges of estimates around where neutral is. Some people think it could be as low as uh, 2% federal funds rate, maybe 2.5% federal funds rate, somewhere in that zone. So we're not very far away. So I, I personally don't want us to commit to a steep path until we actually see how wage growth picks up and inflation. Well, should we check the stakes? Yeah, we're almost ready to put them on the grill. So you can see the outside is not very attractive yet, right. and that's what the that's, that's what the, what the grill's all about. Do. So what is doing it on right on the coals achieved that you can't do if you're two things? One is it gets hotter than even if you're a little bit off. Right. So hotter is better, and second, believe it or not, you actually get some taste from yeah. the charcoal, and I and I love the flavor. So before we start, I want to just you know yeah. the test is I want to cut one open right. and see what it looks like on the inside. I'm going for medium rare. Sometimes, you know, the temperature's a little off, but let's just give it a shot and let's see what it looks like. Oh, yeah, it's that's a little, It's a little more done than I probably would have liked, ideally. You get the first bite. Oh, that's perfect. I'm I'm tell me the truth. I'm not, I'm not making it up. It's delicious. That's the only way I'm going to eat steak from now on. 
We also got a check on the trade tensions between the U.S. and China with Brad Setzer, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and former U.S. Treasury Department official, who discussed what, if any alternative tools China has in their financial arsenal to fight back against tariffs. So broadly speaking, China has three asymmetric options, options that don't involve responding to a billion dollars of tariffs uh, that the U.S. imposes with a billion dollars in Chinese tariffs. One is to get tough on U.S. companies operating in China, make it hard for Starbucks to sign a lease, uh, mount a campaign against GM to reduce its joint venture sales. The second uh, is to guide China's own currency down. If the U.S. is taking actions that reduce China's exports, one logical response is for China to take actions that would boost its exports, and a weaker currency uh, would help there. And then the third, which gets a lot of uh, attention, is often discussed, is China could try to use its large holdings of U.S. bonds, primarily treasuries, uh, but also some agencies as a tool of influence. My personal view is that that's actually kind of hard. Uh, yeah, Brad, explain why that is, because uh, people often cite that one, but, as, but it basically just contradicts point number two. There's no way to really reduce its holdings if it also would like to have a more uh, competitive currency. Well, I'll push back a tiny bit on the contradiction. China could shift from longer-dated Treasury notes, so three-year, five-year, seven-year, ten-year uh, bonds, to short-dated Treasuries, bills, or put his money in bank accounts. That would have no currency effect, uh, but it arguably would have some effect on the shape of the yield curve. Uh, the difficulty is that if China's moving the yield curve around, if China's pushing up the term premia, the Fed could quite logically uh, respond by shifting its policy path or even by uh, uh, signaling that it would adjust the pace of balance sheet roll-off. And in broad terms, that has the exact same but offsetting effect of Chinese sales of longer-dated bonds. And Brad, at the same time, we are starting to see signs that Chinese growth is weakening. Does that then further limit some of those arrows in the quiver, so to speak, that you were talking about? Well, I don't think it uh, materially affects whether or not China is going to, uh, you know, kind of at the margin put pressure on Starbucks. You could probably do that without having a material impact on Chinese growth. Uh, It could actually constrain China's ability to respond dollar for dollar with tariffs, since many of the tariffs, particularly as you go to tariffing essentially all of U.S. Chinese trade, would have an adverse effect on Chinese economy. If you put tariffs on imported U.S. semiconductors, for example, that would hurt China's exports. The option that uh, would, in some sense, hurt the U.S. and help China particularly if China's economy is slowing, is a weaker currency. And that's kind of obviously what the market is now focused on. Yeah, and clearly we're already seeing that, and we've seen the fixings as well from China weaken too. But how much latitude actually do they have here to weaken the currency without creating broader concern from investors actually that we're going to see a broader depreciation and kind of forcing it and risking capital outflow as a result? Well, I think there's two interesting points to make here. 
One is that by signaling that it wants a slight weakening of its currency, China could trigger, as you mentioned, more outflows. Uh, that has some risk to China, but it also would give China the appearance uh, or give the appearance that a Chinese currency depreciation is in response to market moves. So that might uh, ironically uh, have some uh, positive effects on the optic side. Uh, the harder question, though, is how do you, once you put that in motion, how do you keep it controlled? China historically has not wanted it, an uncontrolled depreciation. So in the event that the currency weakens and there's expectations the currency would weaken more, there would be a risk that the outflows could become uh, too big and that that would test China's uh, tightened capital controls. My personal view is that China probably has a little bit of latitude uh, here, that they're, given that the controls were tightened significantly in 2017, uh, I think China could manage, but there's clearly a risk. So just to be clear, I mean, there, the conventional view, I think, is that the currency devaluation of 2% in August 2015 was not a particularly successful or well-executed policy uh, that did spur a lot of nervousness, a lot of market volatility. You think they could kind of go back at it, but maybe in a smarter way that doesn't cause as much uh, as many problems? Well, I think there's a couple of questions. One, does it cause a lot of volatility in China that China doesn't want? Uh, weakening of China's own stock exchange and the like. The other is, does it cause volatility globally, particularly in the U.S.? And in a trade war context, uh, that volatility in the U.S. in some sense is the desired uh, outcome. I do think there, though, are a couple of important differences uh, between China's position now and its position back in uh, 2015. Uh, the first is that uh, the carry trade, which was quite strong and had led to a big run-up of short-term Chinese uh, debt that Chinese uh, companies owed to banks abroad, that carry trade unwound in 15 and 16, and it hasn't come back with the same strength. So the fuel that uh, drove some of the market volatility isn't there. Uh, the second is that China really did tighten its controls in 2017. That's why uh, FDI outflows fell off a cliff. And so there's arguably less scope for money to move out of China then than now. And the third, and this is a little bit more debatable, is that China has, in the 2015-16 move, broadly transitioned away from a peg against the dollar to a peg against a basket. That doesn't mean that you can devalue against the basket without having any consequence. Uh, so I don't think that's decisive. But I do think that there are a set of differences that might allow China a bit more latitude. So, Brad, taking a step back and looking at the whole situation here, on balance, when you look at these various options open to China, and on the other hand, when you look at President Trump's seeming willingness to incur and live with some negative, at least short-term consequences, where does the balance lie at this point? Who has uh, the benefit uh, in leverage at this point? Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. 
With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. I mean, I honestly think it's, it's pretty balanced. Uh, the U.S. imports more, uh, and therefore uh, the U.S. has more scope to put tariffs on Chinese goods than China does to put tariffs on U.S. goods. Uh, that's sort of the, the reality that Trump keeps coming back to. Exports to the U.S. are more important to the Chinese economy than U.S. exports to China are to the U.S. economy. That said... Uh, the U.S. has more direct investment in China than China has here. So China has more opportunities to squeeze important U.S. companies. And China has much greater scope to use its currency as a policy tool than the U.S. does. We treat the dollar as the residual uh, after monetary policy decisions are changed. China's currency is managed. Brad, real quickly on the, uh, we didn't dive much into what it could do against U.S. companies directly, like Starbucks, like Apple, like GM. How much of a possibility do you think that really is? And is that something perhaps that in the discussion we have about retaliation isn't getting enough attention and perhaps maybe not being uh, thought about enough by investors and some multinationals? No, I think it's gotten a reasonable amount of attention. I think there's sometimes actually a tendency to equate uh, damage to U.S. companies in their Chinese operations with damage to the U.S. economy. So I would, I would agree with you to the extent that it is focused on uh, what matters to equity investors rather than it is focused on what matters to the broader U.S. economy. But there's plenty of examples of China mounting uh, powerful campaigns against foreign companies operating in China. If you look at how China responded when the Koreans allowed the THAAD missile defense to be based in China as part of the uh, attempt to counter North Korean uh, missile developments, and the Chinese were upset, you saw a really quite sharp drop in Hyundai's sales inside China. Mm. Its uh, Beijing joint venture partner started complaining that uh, Hyundai's joint venture was spending too much on imported Korean parts and not buying enough low-cost uh, low Chinese parts. And you saw a fall in Chinese tourism to Korea as Chinese tour companies stopped marketing trips to Korea. Mm. You can just kind of go through the list and because of the nature of China's economy, there are a lot of informal levers that China could apply. Obviously, you take the Hyundai playbook and apply it to GM. You can make it hard for Starbucks to get a lease. You can start mounting uh, campaigns that suggest drinking coffee is unpatriotic and that people right. in China should be drinking tea. Wow. The options are pretty broad. And finally, we talked with Randy Weingarten, American Federation of Teachers president, about the Supreme Court ruling that mandatory union fees for public sector unions were a violation of First Amendment rights to free speech. Randy told us how they had been spending the last couple of years preparing for this decision and how she expected it would impact membership. 
there's rallies all over the country, so I'm yes. in my rally shirt. Don't today. be sorry. sorry. <laughs> You're representing. Um, this is clearly not a surprise. This no. decision, and I, I've looked at various estimates that vary clearly depending on who you ask of how many members you're going to lose as a result of this. Well, What's your estimate? Well, frankly, we've been preparing for this case for the last couple of years um, because the best antidote to this case, when people want to take your rights away, your voice away, is that you level with your members and you talk about what's really going on. And from West Virginia to Oklahoma to Arizona to New York, people are sticking with the union. And in fact, all day today, we've had union cards coming in because people say, wait a second, I don't want the right-wing billionaires to actually take away our rights. And that's what this case was, done by Alito. He's wanted to do this for six years. And it's essentially, there were two, there, you know, under the 10th Amendment, for the last 45 years or so, the Supreme Court has said that states who decide that the way they govern labor relations was to, if people want to have a union, the union has to represent everybody as long as everybody pays a fair share. You don't have to join the union, you, and you don't pay any of the political work we do. That is the precedent that was upset today. And so what we think is that most of our members are going to stick with the union. We're seeing that already. We're actually at the highest numbers we've ever been mm -hmm. at as, as in, in, the, in the whole AFT's history, 1.755. And um, that's why all day long people are saying we're sticking with the union. I'm curious. Um, I mean, we talk about unions like it's this big monolith. Yeah, but yeah. Obviously, there are significant differences in different right. industries. Um, teachers unions growing. That's not true of all unions. Correct. Um, what do you think we're going to see kind of on the whole here? Well, what, I've, what has happened in the course of the last 30 or 50, 40 years. Sorry, I'm a social studies teacher. <laughs> I get into teaching history. Is that... In the 70s, you saw a significant um, demise in unions with globalization and, 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 a diff and, and, and you know, different kinds of technology. What's been happening in the last couple of years is that um, all unions across all sectors have been growing because people, millennials in particular, want that voice. With our union, what has happened over the course of the last t decade or so um, we have transformed into being far more activist about community needs and our member needs. Because frankly, just like I was down on the, in, on the border in Tornillo, Texas yesterday, our members want these kids to be protected. They want kids to be with their families, not separated from families. West Virginia strike, Oklahoma strike. It was about getting funding for schools, not just for salaries so that salaries went up, not down, but our work is about what our kids need and what our patients need, things like that. You mentioned those strikes in uh, states like West Virginia and Oklahoma this year. I think catching people very much by surprise, people surprised to see it in red states, uh, Republican governors forced to cave in multiple instances to the demands. Is the model of public sector labor action changing such that the way the unions have operated in recent decades is again uh, perhaps evolved to a more aggressive or more confrontational or maybe just more sort of social media driven approach to getting what uh, the workers want. Well, first off, the reason that that happened in West Virginia, Oklahoma and Arizona, I'll take the states that had multiple day walkouts, yeah. which, by the way, were supported by their employers. 
so it wasn't a traditional strike, right. was because they, in those states, which don't have strong labor laws, right. so you know, the, rest of the rest of the United States is now catching up with those states, don't have strong labor laws. We kept on doing the politics, knock, knock, knocking on legislative doors. They weren't listening. They were disparaging or ignoring. So it took that human shield. So I think you're going to actually see much more of that because in the other states, this whole issue about labor peace for the last 40, 45 years, states like New York, states like California, states like Illinois, what had happened was we were actually solving those problems at the bargaining table. So you didn't see these kind of strikes. And frankly, what you saw in the states that had these fair share dues arrangements, by the way, we fought to keep, ex- we fought to keep that we had a requirement on ourselves to represent everybody. Regardless of whether everybody pays or not, we still believe that we have an obligation to help lift everybody's wages. So what had happened in the states that had these fair share rules is that you have safer communities, you have better services, you have better schools, because what, the, what, what union representation does is it actually gives people a voice and basically a backstop that if they say something, cry out about something, like, you know, special ed kids don't get the, what they need to get, they won't get fired. Wait, so, so explain something to me. Even with this ruling, if uh, teachers are not paying into the system and are not members of the union, we're representing still- them. They still get the benefit because, of collective bargaining we, in, in every state. Is well, that a in na- the states that have collective bargaining. So what's happened is that a lot of these other states, like West Virginia, like there's there's basically, as you know, as you've been reporting, unfortunately, there's basically two countries right now in the United States. There's country. There's there's basically, and I don't want to say red and blue, but there's basically places, states that um, have higher wages, that have better schools. And there are states that don't. Now, sometimes that's correlated to red and blue. But what has happened is that the states that have better wages tend to have collective bargaining, tend to have these fair share arrangements, which have now been thrown out. We believe, as unions, the AFT believes that we are actually stronger together. And what you can do together, it, it is impossible to do alone what you can do together. And that is why, historically, when the unions were at the strongest place, um, you know, in, in history, in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, we had the strongest middle class. And the more unionization you have in a community, the more wages go up, the more likely people have health care. It's kind of like that little old ditty that the unions brought people the 40-hour work week. Unions lift wages in a community. That's what we believe. You know, it's interesting when, and this is an outside observer as well, that you look at some of the rankings and you see, particularly for public schools in the United States, actually them falling down the rankings. And I wonder whether, just in terms of what we were saying there about the evolution of of unionization and the power within the teaching Mm -hmm. system here, that perhaps the the risk is that it's too powerful and that you protect failing teachers at the same time as representing an entire body. I wish we were. I wish we had one one one-hundredth of the power people think we have. If you actually look at the rankings, really look at the rankings, yes. the, um, the states that have strongest unionization are the states that do better in the rankings. If you actually try to factor out poverty and had an apples to apples analysis mm. with the other countries of the world, we would be on top. 
What happens in the United States, which is really different than almost every other country in the world, is that we, we believe, we don't actually act on equity, but we believe every single child should get a great education. Um, but what has happened since the recession is that in these states like Ohio, I'm sorry, in Oklahoma, not Ohio, in Oklahoma, in Arizona, in West Virginia, salaries were really low. Um, people were working two and three, four jobs. In fact, since the recession, the, if, you, if you take into account inflation, salaries have actually gone down. Health costs have gone up so much right. that salaries have gone down. And those are the states that have had weak labor laws. But what to your question, what happened was, you know, enough was enough. And people understood that that human shield would force a political, a political solution. But to get enduring change, you really have to change the people who are elected. And that's so, so what's happening, ironically, what's happening is Justice Alito and Justice Kennedy wanted this case to take us out of politics and now we're going to be involved in politics even more, as opposed to trying to solve these problems all the time at the bargaining table, with a, at a table with your bosses, really trying to say, okay, how do you make sure more kids have AP science, AP English, AP social studies? Mm. How do you do that? How do you make sure special needs kids have what they need? You solve this at tables talking to each other, trying to say, what if, what if, what do you do? Now, a lot of this is going to be solved on the streets. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.